Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, I'm Dr. Aviva Ram, and welcome to episode 110 of Natural MD Radio. It's such a pleasure to have you here with me again today, and I want to talk about something really important and something that actually has been a continued inspiration in the work that I do, which is educating women about some of the risks of conventional medical practices. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how to protect yourself from the big, dangerous business of women's medical devices. In 1971, the A.H. Robbins Pharmaceutical Company of Virginia began selling a contraceptive device marketed as the modern superior, second generation, and safe choice for birth control. It was peddled by a team of hundreds of aggressively trained pharma salesmen to obstetrician gynecologists who in turn promoted it to their patients, amongst them our mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers, depending on how old you are. I'm old enough to distinctly remember my mother considering whether to get one, and she chose to stick with the pill. Now infamous, the intrauterine device, or IUD, known as the Dalcon Shield, distributed to more than 4.5 million women in at least 30 countries, with estimates up to 80 countries, with nearly 2 million of them implanted in women in the U.S., was ultimately responsible for life-threatening pelvic inflammatory disease and resultant sterility, miscarriages, and death in at least tens of thousands of women in the U.S. alone. This was due to its problematic structure and uh, manufacturing materials. Here's the thing. Not only did it become apparent within six months of the shield being on the market that it posed serious health risks, it was found to be remarkably ineffective. The women wearing one, as it was fashionably described, became pregnant at a rate five times that claimed in marketing campaigns, and at a rate much higher than with other IUDs. At least 110,000 pregnancies were documented in women wearing the shield. Of these, 66,000 miscarried by the second trimester, and many women suffered septic miscarriages even later in pregnancy. At least 15 women are known to have had fatal miscarriages due to infection. There were preterm births reported around the globe, as well as full-term babies born with severe defects as a result of the device. Many, if not most of the women who developed PID or pelvic inflammatory disease became infertile. It's likely that in the poorer countries in which it was distributed by the United States Agency for International Development, or USAID, most women with infection died. In 1973, the Centers for Disease Control and and Prevention, or the CDC, found, based on 16,994 physicians who responded to a survey, that 7,900 IUD-related hospitalizations had occurred in the first six months of that year alone. This safe device had not even been put through enough animal testing prior to its release on the market. It didn't have to be. A loophole in the law stated that only after a device had caused injury or death could the FDA, if willing to bear the legal burden, get an injunction to stop sales. Finally, 
eight months after its release and use in women, a two-year baboon safety study was begun. 30% of the baboons suffered with uterine perforation and one in eight died. These results were never made public. Were, Were this a car responsible for even a fraction of this many deaths, there'd have been an immediate recall. There was no recall. There was no warning. The device continued to be sold to doctors as safe and inserted into women. In May of 1974, the FDA requested that the company remove the device from the market, but A.H. Robbins declined, stating that to do so would be to admit culpability and thus lose the growing number of lawsuits being leveled against them. Not lose them as if they went away, lose them as they would lose them and be culpable and liable to pay. More than 300,000 lawsuits were ultimately filed, and A.H. Robbins was legally forced to establish a $615 million reserve to cover claims from living victims who were damaged until the year 2002. Families of those who had died as a result of the shield were given no compensation, and it's estimated that if the company were to cover victims' costs of damages until today for those in the U.S. alone, that number would reach into the billions of dollars. The company eventually filed for bankruptcy, but far too long after leaving a legacy of destruction and death in its wake. In 1976, the Medical Device Amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act mandated that the U.S. FDA finally required testing and approval of medical devices, including IUDs. This chapter in the history of women's medicine is now considered one of the most catastrophic in modern medical history. The Dalcon Shield continued to be implanted in poorer countries, for example in El Salvador, as birth control until into the early 1980s. Sadly, this wasn't the first time in modern history that women, including women who would become or were already pregnant, had been exposed to a medical experiment gone very wrong. Thalidomide, thought to be safe and given to pregnant women in the 1950s to treat morning sickness, turned out to be a teratogen, meaning it caused severe birth defects in babies who had been exposed in uterus. Over 10,000 babies worldwide were born with thalidomide limbs, arms that instead of developing normally looked like stunted flippers. These babies also had heart, eye, digestive, and urinary tract defects, and many were blind and deaf. Uh, Only half of these babies survived. DES, or diethylsilbestrol, is another example. This form of synthetic estrogen, first manufactured in a laboratory in 1938, was prescribed to U.S. women to prevent miscarriages and preterm births between 1938 and 1971. An estimated 5 to 10 million women and children born of these pregnancies were exposed. Published research in 1953 showed that DES did not prevent miscarriages or premature births. However, it continued to be prescribed for these reasons until 1971 and was even included in some prenatal vitamins, meaning many more women may have been exposed than is even known. In 1971, a study identified DES as a cause of a rare vaginal cancer in girls and young women who had been exposed to it through their moms, including in utero, and the FDA sent out an advisory warning physicians not to prescribe it any longer. 
DES is now considered a population health tragedy that has and continues to wreak physical havoc and emotional trauma now on at least three generations of women, and effects have been found in male offspring as well. Long-term side effects include clear cell carcinoma, typically occurring in young women in their 20s, breast cancer, abnormalities of the genital tract that prevent conception or pregnancy, and possible increased risk of cardiovascular disease. As Sybil Shanewald, the pioneering women's health rights attorney, stated, countless women have lost their fertility, their reproductive organs, and their lives because pharmaceutical companies have put unsafe, untested drugs and devices on the market in pursuit of profit, and women, trusting their doctors, take them without question. It was exactly this type of medical history that inspired me in 1981 to become a midwife and then eventually a women's medical doctor. While it would be nice to consider these problems ignorance of the past, they're not. Let's take the Assure device as an example. Assure was designed to provide permanent contraception, or in medical parlance, sterilization. A metal coil that is inserted one into each fallopian tube, it works by creating local fibrosis or scarring. This scarring is then supposed to block that fallopian tube and prevent an ovum and sperm from meeting. It was described as a less invasive, less expensive alternative to tubal ligation. The device, which I was taught to insert in my OB-GYN residency, but which from day one I firmly discourage women from getting, was designed to remain in women's tubes for her lifetime. Yet, its approval by the FDA was based only on short-term safety studies. Of the 745 women in the pre-market studies, 92% were followed up for safety for only one year and 25% for two years. No studies went past that for a device meant to be left in indefinitely. While initial studies found that about 4% of women experience complications, including fallopian tube perforation or misplacement of the device at the time of the procedure, sometimes requiring several devices to be implanted rather than the recommended single device in each tube, a 2009 review concluded that Assure appeared safe and effective based on these short-term preliminary studies but it turns out it wasn't so safe either. Thousands of women began reporting serious side effects, symptoms, and adverse effects, ranging from moderate chronic pelvic pain to severe chronic vaginal bleeding to new onset of autoimmune conditions. A Facebook group called Eshore Problems, which by early 2017 had over 33,000 members, called the device eHell. Their reports to their own doctors went dismissed. But as early as 2015, the U.S. FDA Adverse Events Database had cataloged numerous complications, including hundreds of unintended pregnancies with the device in place, which occurred sometimes with fragments of the device embedded in the uterus where the baby could implant, intractable pain and heavy persistent bleeding, even leading to hysterectomies, tubal perforations, and possible device-related deaths. In 2017, the European Union suspended the commercial license for Eshore, and eventually, numerous European countries banned the device or it was withdrawn from the market by the manufacturer due to bad press, lowered sales, and potential legal issues. Yet in the United States, we continued to lag behind. 
In February 2016, the FDA issued a black box label to warn the public about the harmful complications associated with the use of this device. But most doctors don't read black box warnings to patients. And how would a woman know to look for that on a medical device? Finally, by April of 2018, the FDA restricted sale and use of Ashore and and had a decrease in sale by 70%. So, in July of 2018, Bayer announced the halt of sales in the U.S. by the end of that year, and as of now, the device is no longer permitted for use. How many women have had this device implanted? About 750,000. The devastating saga of this device, but also the awesome power, in fact, gives me chills, the power of women rising together to self-advocate is beautifully featured in the 28 Netflix documentary, The Bleeding Edge. So that brings us to the pelvic mesh. Urogynecologic mesh, also called transvaginal mesh, is used to treat stress incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, problems which lead one in five women to have surgical repair in their lifetimes to reverse symptoms like pelvic pressure, pain during sex, and and mild to even debilitating urinary leakage. Moderate to severe levels of all of those conditions affect about 20% of women. The mesh is a net-like hammock, if you will, held in place by sutures or medical staple-like devices that is used to provide permanent support of the pelvic organs that may have been weakened by stretched ligaments due to childbirth or hormonal changes that occur with menopause that cause these organs to slip down from their regular place or cause urinary leakage. Like the Assure device, the mesh was able to bypass the most stringent of FDA testing standards because it was, in essence, grandfathered in based on the fact that the mesh was already in common use for other medical purposes, for example, hernia repair. This kind of grandfathering in happens all the time. If a device has been in place and has been used for some similar purpose, it doesn't have to go through the stringent testing approval that a new device would have to be typically tested by. And like the Assure device, high levels of safety and effective outcomes were assured to the women being offered the pelvic organ repair with mesh. And like the Assure, pharmaceutical companies who make the meshes aggressively marketed them to surgeons treating pelvic organ prolapse, for example, urogynecologists. Were adverse events and problems recognized? Well, let's put it this way. The device was in use until just this past year, 2019. Yet the FDA was already issuing safety warnings to doctors and consumers back in 2011 about an increased number of adverse events related to the mesh. By 2012, the FDA had classified this as a high-risk medical device based on the number of adverse events reports they were getting in. Were women informed of the risks when being offered this surgical repair? No, most were not. The level of suffering women report from having had this procedure is astonishing. I've heard stories of and from women who now live with chronic pain, vaginal damage and scarring, as well as fistulas, meaning tracks between organs where there shouldn't be tracks allowing passage of material from one place to another that shouldn't happen. So for example, between the bladder and the uterus, or between the vagina and the rectum, and women who have had numerous repair surgeries with no improvement and often the surgery making things even worse, many who have not only lost the ability to have sex because of the pain, 
but have had so much trauma sexually and in their lives who've lost their marriages and ability to work. The number of women who have suffered from this device is astonishing. And because it, like the Assure, creates scarring that holds it in place as part of the technique, removal of the device can entail hours of difficult surgery, can lead to permanent damage of other nearby organs like the bladder, uterus, and bowels, and cause permanent nerve damage. And it isn't always possible to remove all or even most of it. Like with the Assure, tens of thousands of women, including some who were quite young when they had it done, will live with the ongoing consequences of this device for the rest of their lives. While there are certainly examples of its life-saving heroism, unfortunately, modern Western medicine is replete with examples of treatments, primarily for women, that have been proven unnecessary, harmful, deadly, and sometimes all three. In fact, Western medicine is built on a history and foundation of misogyny that persists today and women's bodies remain big business for a number of extremely profitable industries. So what are we to do? From cesarean sections to treatment for pelvic floor prolapse and urinary incontinence, there's no end to the everyday challenges that are possible in the realm of what happens in women's bodies. And sometimes, indeed, we do need medical help to get us through that challenge. But far too often, we're backed into a corner in our decision-making. Decision-making. We're told the worst case scenario, made to feel even more vulnerable than we probably already do as a result of medical settings and medical conversations that leave us feeling small and confused at best, bullied at worst. And most medical providers don't even offer the appropriate less interventive medical alternatives they should be offering, let alone natural alternatives, which most don't know about at all. Take, for example, the problem with hysterectomies. Half of all women in the United States will have had a hysterectomy. And many younger women, even in their 20s and 30s, usually for benign reasons that can be treated in other non-surgical ways, for example, endometriosis, are given a hysterectomy. Yet 20% of all hysterectomies, at least in the United States, are considered medically entirely unnecessary. There are other options, medical options, not even alternative medicine, but conventional medical options. And yet large studies looking at over 5,000 women in major university and surrounding towns found that only 30% at most of women who have been advised to have a hysterectomy are informed of non-surgical alternatives by their doctor. Further, too often women's own reports of their symptoms and concerns are ignored. In fact, just this week, I received this note. Dear Dr. Aviva, for the past year and a half, I have been feeling poorly. Long story short, I went to four different doctors to find an answer. Yep, you know what's coming. No luck. In the back of my mind was a lesson you shared with us about how women's health is treated differently than men's. We're not given the same consideration. Because my primary doctor was a woman, I expected a different outcome. In the end, I met with both male and female physicians, and none of them took the time to truly listen to me and my symptoms or to help me figure out what was going on. I finally advocated myself for an MRI. I got a chuckle in return, but I was given the MRI and was diagnosed with a brain tumor two days later. I'm scheduled for surgery next week. Had you not expressed the importance of women advocating for ourselves, I would have not had the courage to ask for the MRI. Words cannot express how grateful I am for you sharing your wisdom. 
So what can we do to advocate for ourselves? Here are my top five recommendations for avoiding unnecessary, inappropriate, or possible unsafe medical treatments, and for making sure that when you do go in for a medical treatment, if needed, that you really have gotten the best information that you can about that treatment and have made a truly informed decision. Number one, bring an advocate or at least a tape recorder. That can be your smartphone. This is a great way to help you stay empowered to cover the most important concerns on your agenda, to review what was said later, particularly if you're feeling anxious or vulnerable in the medical appointment, which makes everything just sound like a white noise machine is going and not in a relaxing way. And it will put your provider into best behavior and most thorough mode. If we're being recorded, we're going to really be attentive and make sure that we cross all the T's and dot all their I's. Now, your doctor should be doing that or care provider should be doing that anyway, but this can really take it to another level. Now, your doctor might not like this and might even tell you it's not okay, but it is your actual legal right to do it. And it's your right to have a supportive witness there with you. Now, if your doctor or provider says you can't record this or they feel stressed, I mean, I wouldn't say, look, I'm doing this to document what you're saying and you know, have, a, have proof you said this later. But just say, when I'm in my medical appointment, I often feel anxious and don't even remember what was said. So this is my way to review it later. Now, you shouldn't have to, medically, you shouldn't have to manage your care provider's emotions or mental response, but you know, you, your job is to get what you need out of it. So if managing it means you're going to get what you need, then that's a helpful way to approach it. Number two is keep your clothes on. And what I mean is keep your clothes on for the part of your medical appointment where you'll be talking with your doctor or your care provider about your concerns and do that first. None of us feels confident when we're in a Johnny with our booty hanging out in the background, or if we're getting a pelvic exam, the Johnny open in the front with our boobs and bottoms hanging out. It's not a way to feel confident and advocate for yourself. I wouldn't be able to do that either. And I've been in women's health for 35 years and you know had four babies at home and get my paps done too. And if you get your physical exam all butt naked first, you're going to feel less uh, empowered after when that same doctor has now seen you strip bare and now is talking with you. And I think often if it's a male doctor, that makes it even worse. So keep your clothes on. If you get brought into a room and they say they want to weigh you and don't do all of that stuff, that's fine. Let them do it after. And you say, first, I'm going to speak with the doctor. And this is, again, we're not taught to advocate for ourselves as women. We're not taught to speak up for ourselves. In fact, we're taught the opposite, right? To be nice, not make trouble, not make waves. And maybe those of you who are millennials listening to this are a little bit more able to advocate for yourself. But a lot of times when it comes to that vulnerable moment and the hierarchy or perceived hierarchy of a medical doctor's office, we we get a little bit more reticent to speak up for ourselves. So really advocating for yourself. I mean, we're talking a woman who didn't have a brain tumor diagnosed, diagnosed for a year and a half, ladies. So really, you know, advocating and keeping your clothes on, getting your points across, getting that information conveyed, then changing for the exam appointment is one way to do it. And that's a great way. If that's not acceptable in your doctor's practice or your primary provider's practice, then set up two separate appointments. Have the first appointment to address your concerns and then come back for a follow-up to, you know, have that physical exam. Um, Super, super important. When you're stripped down also, your doctor doesn't see you the same way. If, if they're a really good, sensitive care provider, 
they might, they, they will hopefully like a really great woman, gynae, a midwife, you know, nurse practitioner. And you're not going to usually have these issues with nurse practitioners and midwives quite as much. It's really, this is very endemic to the medical model. Um, we see so many patients in their gowns that after a while it does start to look like a uniform. And so it's like looking at a, you know, a bunch of school children all in their uniform. It's hard to pick out one from the other at some point. And so even when I have patients who go in hospital, I say to them, wear your own bedclothes from home, wear your own pajamas, wear your own nightgown, bring a blanket from home and have that on the bed and have pictures of yourself, your friends, your family around you in your hospital room right there where the resident, the nurses, the doctors can see it because it makes you a person, not a person in a nightgown who's now a chart number. And it's so, so important. I can't really even overemphasize that point. Number three is advocate for yourself. And this is the hardest. And you have to really ask how truly urgently an intervention is needed if it's recommended. How long can you wait before getting that intervention? Ask your doctor about his or her outcome statistics. Ask about any known adverse effects of the procedure or the medication or the the device that's being put in. And have they looked at the FDA adverse events reporting site? Do they know what other patients are saying? Not just their patients, but what the accumulated evidence is. And insist on hearing about any possible temporizing measures or healing alternatives so that you're not pressured to make a decision right then and there. And of course, we're not talking about an emergency, but even in an emergency, you know, moderate emergency, these are still the things you want to know or have an advocate know. Bring a script with you or a note with your concerns written down in the order of priority. Most of us do get anxious at medical appointments, and when we're being hurried or even bullied, it doesn't make us clearer or more articulate or comfortable communicating our concerns. That's where bringing that advocate with you can also really help. And I recommend bringing a really like a kick-ass friend or your sister I don't recommend bringing your mom because moms can get more worried and emotional. And often if the mom is old enough, she's still steeped in that do what your doctor says kind of mentality. Unless your mom is a you know, kick-ass, powerful feminist, all power to you. And I don't recommend bringing a male partner because often there's a power dynamic, particularly if the doctor is a male and your partner is a male. Some women have found that to be really helpful if they're in a male-female relationship or they've brought a male friend to kind of like amp up the testosterone in the room to have like that defense advocate, but it, it can also backfire. So you have to kind of know your people, but bringing that advocate with you to help you stay on track, make sure you get your points covered, make sure you're being treated respectfully, your questions are being answered can make a huge difference. Number four is before you consent to any medical procedure or device, Make sure your consent is fully informed. Read what women are saying in chat groups and look online for reliable information about risks and side effects. Look, there's a lot of crap information on the internet. There's a lot of fake news. There's a lot of anti-medical rhetoric. That said, in my experience, you can find some gold mine of in- gold mines of information in women's chat groups, like the Ishore chat group, where women come together and you're starting to hear not three or seven women, but you know 300 or 700 or 3,000 women saying, I had this, and they're all saying the same thing happened. It does start to become important accumulated evidence, and it's often that kind of evidence that leads to the class action shoot, suit that leads to the device or medication 
ultimately being withdrawn. So I don't recommend using Google as your doctor, but strategically using chat groups and private groups where people are talking about the problems they've had with something can really at least give you some insight and help you to make the decision on whether this is right for you. The other thing is that I encourage you to follow the Chase rule of three, or what I actually recommend, the Aviva rule of 10. When I was in medical school for one year, we had a group that we met with, each small group, so it was like eight of us in a group, and it was all about policy and ethics in medicine. The leader of my small group happened to be the then dean of Yale Medical School, Dr. Herbert Chase, and he had something called the Chase Rule of Three. Now, he wasn't into alternative medicine, but he was really into bioinformatics. He was a deep diver into really understanding good evidence from not good evidence based on the data. And he created this rule of three, which is wait for a device or a medication to be on the market for at least three years, at least three years before you use it. And as we saw with the Assure, right, there was one year in which 75% of people were followed up and two years in which another 25% of people were followed up. So 100% of people were not followed up for more than two years for a device that was going to be implanted indefinitely. A lot of studies are small. There are sometimes one or two studies and a drug or a device gets approved or like with the mesh, it gets basically grandfathered in with very limited reporting required on safety or effectiveness. And it's what's called post-market surveillance where we start to find out what's really wrong with something. That means people, researchers looking for data on side effects, adverse effects. That's the point of the FDA adverse effects effects reporting system and what we find out in these chat groups. So Dr. Chase had the rule of three, but given things like the MeSH and given things like the Assure and given things like the Dalcon, unfortunately, we know often within six months or a year that this is a disaster. But unfortunately, that off information is kept suppressed or hidden, so it's not easy for the general public to find it. Now, with the internet, it does become easier. But a lot of women will have something in for six months and they're like, oh, it's new. Maybe this is a normal side effect. So, you know, you get it in and you're just not sure, so you don't say anything or do anything. So, I typically recommend two things actually waiting about 10 years, unless there is some like, life-saving medication that you have to have and it's experimental and you know you're going into an experimental group, don't let these devices be experimented on you. Don't let these medications be experimented on you. It's a passive experiment. So I recommend actually waiting for 10 years before a device or treatment's been on the market to use it. And always stick with tried and true rather than newer approaches. So for example, with pelvic repair, There are methods that have been used that do not include the mesh that are equally as effective as using the mesh with fewer side effects. Do they always work? No, there's a two to 50% failure rate on these treatments, but we do know that they worked as effectively with less risk. So if you can find the thing that's been in use for a long time, often that's a more tried and true. And then of course, learn the side effects of that. And the fifth thing is don't hesitate to get another opinion. And if your care provider is dismissive or insulting, don't hesitate to find another doctor. Also, I have some other um, resources that you can look at or listen to. I have blogs and podcasts called What's Sasha Fierce Got to Do With It? 
how to talk to your doctor and get the health care you need, or in other words, how to be a healthcare badass, and being a good girl can be hazardous to your health, which I think is one of the most important blogs I've ever written. And you can find all of those at my website at avivaram.com forward slash 110. That's the number 110. So avivaram.com forward slash 110. That's where this blog is. That's where the podcast is. Um, and that's where you can find these links to other resources. I'm so grateful that I'm a medical doctor. There are things I've seen, learned, and performed that are breathtaking examples of what modern science has to offer in terms of symptom relief and saving lives. But as with so many things in our culture, more is not necessarily better, and it often proves to be worse and unnecessary. Your body is your business. My business is reminding you of the power of that belief in your body and the ability of your body to heal. And my business is to provide you with reliable, tried and true science-backed alternatives that your MD probably doesn't know about and which also aren't the latest wellness fad. You know, I really try to strike that balance. Like just because it's a fad in wellness doesn't mean it's any better than the fad in conventional medicine. Often it's less risky, but what I want you to have is really reliable and effective therapies that you can use. So in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about pelvic floor prolapse, urinary incontinence, and what you can do to prevent and reverse these non-surgically whenever possible. Thank you so much for joining me on Natural MD Radio. If you haven't already subscribed, I hope that you will. You can also follow me over on Instagram at Aviva Ram MD on my Facebook page, or come hang out with me. I have tons of free resources for you over at my website at avivaram.com. See you next time. Hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.